What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Who's Number One. Cruising right through the week here. It is Wednesday. Who's Number One podcast number 47. We're almost at the 50 mark. Crazy to think that. And uh, very excited to introduce our guest today. We have an IBJJF world champion, ADCC world champion. Absolute world Legendary champion. commentator, Robert Drysdale, joining us on the call. Robert, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You, you growing your beard out for the quarantine? It looks a little longer than the last time I saw you. I want to see how far I can make it with that. Like, I'm not training right now, so, you know, you know, the problem when it gets too long, people try to grab the collar and they pull the beard, and that's normally when I trim it down, right? So right now, let's see how far I can make it. You're out there in uh, in Vegas right now. How how has this whole situation been for you, and what are you uh, doing to get by? Um. You know, look, it's, it's, I'm two minds about it, to be honest. Like, I, there's a part of me that, you know, obviously I'm worried for the country's economy and my own and, and all that, of course. You know, there's a financial concern, especially when you're deeply involved in a sport like BJJ. It's my only source of income. And it's about the, the most worst thing you can do as far as, you know, spreading a viral infection. It's like in each other's face, breathing in each other's face all day. And I worry that will be a long term of the effects of social distancing people's minds, like, I got to be away from people and BJJ is the opposite of that, right? So there's that as a concern. On the other hand, I really like being alone at home. It's kind of quiet and I get to, you know, I'm much productive and it's it's been nice in a lot of ways. It's a nice break from a hectic life. You know, things were moving a little too fast for me on a personal level. So it's been a good reset and in that way, it's been very positive. Uh, are you doing like what a lot of people are doing, like teaching Zoom classes or anything like that? What, what are you doing for your students right now? Uh, we do Zoom classes daily. Um, I interact with them on a daily basis, like doing Q&A. It's limited because like, when we teach jiu-jitsu online, we basically do the two things that we hate the most, warm-ups and positions. You know, like the <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's a testament to how much we really love jiu-jitsu that we can stay active and do the two things that we hate the most. Like Most people want to show up late to skip the warm-up, and here we are doing sit-outs and push-ups on, in front of a TV, you know? So it's it's... Yeah, it is what it is. Like I, I do a lot of Q and A's, which I have a lot of fun doing. Um, you know, and um, you know, people get to ask me questions and you know, answer them. A lot of I think there's a lot more to jujitsu than just technique. I've always said this about the sport: that there's this hyper focus on techniques and new techniques, and but there's so much more to the equation, right? Like when it comes to mindset, everyone always talks about the mind, like how the mind is the most important thing, right? So I've been gearing like a lot of my lessons towards like what we can, what can we do to improve on our mindset when we compete because people struggle with that. You know, we've all seen amazing grapplers that can't win matches and like it's always like, oh, it's the head. He's got to, you know, it's all in his head. And how do you get past that? And I was one of those struggling guys. You know, I really struggled with competition. So I, I it was never easy. For me. So, um, you know, I, I sometimes give people advice and they, they tend to like that advice and I think there's a lot of different ways we can learn and practice jiu-jitsu that don't involve trying to choke each other out. What do you think uh, the future holds for jiu-jitsu schools when it opens up? Do you think there's going to be any like uh, type of restrictions on the amount of people, or how do you think we're going to get back into training? Have you, I'm sure you've thought about that. I, uh, you know, I, I think that one one possible solution is like less people in the gym, like more classes, like more of an open mat, kind of like limited amount of people. The social distancing thing is actually impossible, right? So. I hope that Uncle Sam doesn't have any specific res- restrictions on how BJJ gyms run or, or wrestling clubs, for that matter, or other grappling arts, because we are, we're not like karate and taekwondo in that sense. So we don't really fall in the same category. I'm hoping the government puts us all in the same category. That would be beneficial to BJJ. 
But moving forward, I think the long-term effect is the cultural perception of what social, the importance of social distancing. Like my daughters are trained already not to like stay close to people. They stay away. They know better, right? Because I've taught them. And I wonder like if that's not going to have a long-term effect in the overall perception of the populace towards you know being close to people. Because that would be very, very detrimental to the growth of BJJ. We might have like be experiencing a bit of a decline in the following years, even if we do recover from this, just because how much of a, a germaphobes people will be following this crisis. Absolutely. Uh, what's going on with your documentary? I know you've been working on this uh, documentary for a little while. What's what's the status on that? Um, it's going good, man. We're actually making a big push to release this summer, so I am confident we will finish and release it before the end of the lockdown. That's kind of the hope because like, we feel that. If there's a time to release a documentary about the history of jiu-jitsu, it's when people can't train. Because if we get into trying to compete for an audience in terms of like the next ADCC or world championships, like it's fighting is always going to be more interesting to the majority of people. But we, we have this ambition to tell jiu-jitsu history as accurately as possible. Like I, I try to say this as much as possible because as soon as you say like we're going to try to, you know, retell the original narrative, people immediately assume it's an anti-Gracie documentary. And it's really not the intention. We really, we want to give credit to people like George Gracie. It was, you know, most people never heard of him, but he's arguably the father of modern MMA. So why has he been eliminated from the history, right? We want to make sure that he's included there. People like Pacquiao, the Ono brothers, George McGee. There's so many people that are relevant to the story that, you know, didn't make it into the final cut, so to speak, of the official narrative. So, you know, Leo and Carlos are still certain central, but they're not the only characters. Um, and, and we really offer a different perspective of how and why BJJ developed, but it's at odds. Many of our conclusions are at odds with, you know, how people believe Jiu-Jitsu made it from Japan to Brazil and from there to the world. And I think that the end result will be something that's going to help shape the history of Jiu-Jitsu. This, is, this, this new, new view already exists in academic work, but... It's not something that there's in the jiu-jitsu community is familiar with because it's not, it's, you have to read a lot. And like most, this generation, millennials don't like to read, long story short. So we wanted to tell the story in a, in a, in a film format where even if you don't want to read five, 6,000 pages of academic work, you, you might want to watch a 90 minute film that tells the history of jiu-jitsu so we can know our roots, you know, and I try to know them in an unbiased way. Yeah, the genealogy of jiu-jitsu is definitely a, a fascinating topic. I'm really looking forward to the film. Without giving too much away, I'm sure there are many things that uh, that you've learned on your path making this movie. Is there one anecdote or one person that jumped out to you that maybe you weren't aware of before or maybe there's significance that you could share with us now to, as, as a bit of a teaser and something that you discovered? A, a few. Like the first account of someone teaching jiu-jitsu in Brazil was the Brazilian emperor in 1888, like he hired a man called Takezawa Mamidi, so well before Maeda. And in the 19-teens, a man called Sada Miyaku was uh, teaching and fighting in Brazil. Um, he allegedly, you know, uh, has a Brazilian student, student called Mario Aleixo in 1913, was not only teaching Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, well, we don't call it Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, we just call it Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, this is a year before Maeda Konjikoma arrived in Brazil, a Brazilian teaching Jiu-Jitsu in Brazil. And he also had a hybrid style. There was a mix of Salvate, Capoeira, and Jiu-Jitsu. Because he had like something that to MMA in mind, a complete form of combat. This is in 1930. Right? The story continues with Maeda. Maeda is a more popular character. Uh, many students in Brazil, Maeda had five principal students in Brazil. Uh, Jacinto Ferro, Valdemar Gomes, Rafael Lopes, uh, 
Matos Pereira and Guilherme de la Rosa. These students are mentioned a lot in these archives. And they're very clearly Maeda's like right hand guys. And um, interesting that it's Carlos Grace doesn't appear in the story until much, much later. He probably had Brazilian instructors other than Maeda. That's what all the evidence suggests. So it's a bit of a, a change in the official narrative. And Carlos is still central to the history, but it's very likely that he exaggerates his relationship with Maeda for obvious reasons. And I, I don't even blame him for that. I think most people would have done the same thing in his shoes. In fact, if you ask my students, my white belts, who's their instructor, they're probably going to say Robert Drysdale, even though I haven't taught a white belt class in like three years. Yeah. Now, it's not unusual for you to name the person who is more known to the person that the people you're talking to than the actual instructor who is less known. So Carlos followed, you know, that that sort of mindset, and but his relationship with Maeda is very, very. It's not clear. There's no evidence for it. But you know, this doesn't mean that we're taking credit for Carlos or Hugo for that matter. They, they play a very central role in the development of the district. It's just that, you know, we're trying to take a bias out and just be more accurate, as accurate as a source of that. Did uh, your research here sort of affirm what you thought going in, or did it change your outlook on a lot of things? Did you discover new things that you didn't think? A lot. Yeah, well, yes and no. Like, you mature into it, you know. Like, the relationship between judo and jiu-jitsu, Brazilian this is very interesting I like to say that the more appropriate term is not Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it's Brazilian Judo. Because basically what Brazilians did, they, they found a niche within the Kodokan rule set. Shigoro Khan was a very shrewd, the father of Judo and all of modern martial arts. He is he was a very shrewd businessman, he's a very shrewd politician. I won't call him a businessman, let me rephrase that. Like an influential uh, uh, person within Japanese society, a very educated man, if you will. But I my opinion, he didn't really understand grappling. Because if you understand grappling, you don't limit the grapple. How can you talk about takedowns without the guy, right? And he goes out of his way, from my understanding, to eliminate much of ground fight. He compared ground fight to being an animal. If your animals are on the ground, humans stand to walk. You know, like it's that's his words. So he eliminated so much from grappling over the years. And the Kodokan rule set became so stand-up oriented that they allowed a vacuum for Brazilian jiu-jitsu to exist. Brazilian jiu-jitsu would not have existed if the judo rule set allowed for shoulder locks, foot locks, guard pulling, and all these other techniques that did exist in Japan at the time, were present. You had open guard, the lahiva, X guard. These things all existed, right? But, you know, the Jigoro Kano and Koro Kano had a preference for stand-up. I suspect because he was less familiar with the ground, his own personal preferences, and maybe other people who were making the rule set. And also Jigoro Kano was like, he's a gentleman. You're talking about the early 19th, you know, 20s here when they really formulate Kodokan is becoming what it is today. And the idea of a gentleman to be on the ground and dirty is not very gentleman-like. You're supposed to be upright and standing and clean. So the ground is a filthy place. So I think that this might have played a role in how Jigorokan perceived the ground. But be that as it may, whatever the case, Brazilians, you know, they, they saw a space there to create something that Kodokan had originally but became increasingly neglected, which is ground fight. And in that space, we later went, you know, it was called, it was all judo initially, but they, 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 it's kind of like a split on how, you know, Brazilians start using the arc term jiu-jitsu increasingly. It's a much older term than judo. Judo is a modern term at the time. And Japanese start using more and more judo as judo grows around the world. The result is the term, two terms that were used interchangeably became, began to start using, like judo became more associated with Japanese practitioners aligned with Kodokan and jiu-jitsu with like a niche in Brazil that would later become Brazilian jiu-jitsu, right? 
And we talk about this split in the documentary. And it was very interesting to see how much we're going to just follow the computer. Everything from the belt rankings to like uh, the, the tournament formats. Um, I mean, the gi, obviously. And you really began to see Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as an extension of Judo because of, quote, my opinion, mistakes that Kodo company, Jigoro Kano made. You know, I think eliminating the round was a big mistake. So, um, yeah, and that's what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu And the Grace family plays a huge role in this, by the way, because I, this is my always my argument. We've never heard of Peruvian Jiu-Jitsu. Plenty of Japanese and Peruvian. You never heard of Hawaiian Jiu-Jitsu. Plenty of Japanese and Hawaiian. In fact, Japanese are migrating all over the world. It's not just Brazil, even though Brazil is the hub for that immigration during that period. Um, but you see is um, you see this like this this uh, uh, this these Japanese like they, they they play a role in development jiu-jitsu, but only Brazil really develops within that vacuum that Kodokan created. And I strongly believe that Carlos Aquilio played a role here, even though the role was not technical. I don't see Carlos Aquilio developing it technically. I think that's not I mean that's at odds with everything we know from from the Japanese industry. Uh, I think that their biggest role in allowing BJJ to create this was to creating a space for it to exist outside of judo. Long story short, it's resisting the expansion of judo as judo grows throughout the 50s, 60s, becomes later an Olympic sport. It grows on, it becomes a sport of the masses. It has government support. It has government funding. It's a very prestigious sport to be involved in. Right? Jiu-Jitsu almost dies in the 60s, 70s, 80s. It's almost dead. It has a revival in the 90s. And for that, I think the Gracie family, particularly Carlos Helio, Carlos Santos, they, they play a very important role in keeping this niche long, alive long enough, small little seed that almost dies many times, long enough for us to be here. Later, Carlos Gracie Jr. comes along with CBJJ slash IBJJF and revolutionizes the sport forever. My opinion, that's when the real revolution begins, is in 1994 with the founding of CBJJ slash IBJJF. When they begin consistent organized tournaments, that's when techniques take a big lead. And you can watch jiu-jitsu in the 80s and 90s and see this. And you can watch competition very rapidly evolving from the late 90s onwards. And to me, this is a testament not of that you know, uh, of, of the importance of competition for the development of high-level techniques and you know, competition. What were some of the early uh, technical innovations once they started, like you said, the CBJJ started having a more organized tournament structure? Um, I think a lot of tournaments and a lot of bringing more competitors uh, allows the sport to develop technically, right? But what you begin to see, if you watch Jiu-Jitsu in the 80s and 90s, even though Brazilians were very skilled on the ground, it was very simple. It was, you know, pass. Half guard was halfway to mount. That's what a half guard was. Mm-hmm. Mount, choke, back, we're naked. Very efficient jiu-jitsu, but it's not very sophisticated as compared to what we see today. My and this is like one of the pieces in the documentary is that the Japanese were light years ahead of Brazilians, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, far, far ahead of Brazilians technically. You can watch footage on Kosen Judo, and you can't even compare what they're doing, you know, with what, what was being done in Brazil at the time. The Kosen Judokas are doing very bolos, De La Riva, Exgar, Bravo Choke. Like, we're watching these guys do this in, like, the 40s and 50s. We're like, man, these guys, you don't develop, you don't reach those conclusions unless you have spent thousands of hours on the mats. You don't reach those conclusions watching people train. You reach those conclusions, like, training a lot. So you know that there was a culture of a grappling, like, so ground grappling in Japan that, you know, as I explained, later dies because of Koro Kanjusu. But technically, they were very, very much, um, far more advanced than, than the ring. I'll give an example. We spoke to Hobson Gracie, Hemsworth Gracie's father, the patriarch of the Gracie family, Flavio Baring, and Carlos Gracie Jr. 
the founder of IDPJF, right? They all told us the same thing. They didn't know what a triangle was until the late 70s. Just to give you an idea, this is the late 70s. They didn't know what a triangle was, right? The Japanese knew what the triangle was since the 1930s. We have, like, we know that the Japanese were perfectly familiar with what a triangle was. So it gives you an idea of how much more sophisticated the Japanese were for much, much of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu's history. It, in my opinion, this is my opinion, it only takes, it makes a big, the Brazilians take a big leap forward after 94 and, and then onwards, like Brazilians, or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu just takes over. I mean, the Japanese are, like, left behind. It's, it's interesting because, like, the Kosen Judoka that we spoke to in Japan, like, they're the original Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioners really, when they get to it, because, like, they're experts on the ground. And their heroes are like people like Leandro Lowe and Rafael Mendes, which I thought was very <laughs> amazing. So, uh, speaking of history, I'd like to talk a little bit about your history because you have sort of a different story than a lot of uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu competitors. You grew up partly in America and partly in Brazil, correct? Uh, yes, I was born in Provo, Utah, to a Mormon missionary. My, my father's a Mormon missionary. He did his mission in the south of Brazil. So, when he came back to Brazil, he to, to Utah to finish his. Uh, um, uh, his studies at UIU, he met my mother. My mother was an Olympic caliber swimmer who was on a scholarship. Uh, I was looking for someone to complete their swimming team. They found my mom in Brazil. She didn't speak a word in English. So she met my dad at the BYU campus. I was born on campus, the BYU campus. And um, we lived in Utah, you know, Provo, Utah for a few years, and then Hemet, California. We moved to Brazil when I was six. So most of my schooling was done in Brazil. So English is my first language, but on some topics, my Portuguese is better. It depends on the topic. It depends on what I'm talking about. My English is better or my Portuguese. <laughs> but uh, my uh, my training began in Brazil uh, when I was 16. I, I like to say within that nature-nurture debate, I don't think you learn to become a martial artist. You're born one. You know, like when I was a kid, I didn't care about kites, cars. Everything had to do with fighting. He-Man, G.I. Joe, swords, guns, everything had to do with combat. So I think from a very young age, I was very, very attracted to that, um, you know, sort of thing. And I was not a particularly great athlete as a child. Like, I really tried to play soccer in Brazil. And if you don't play soccer well in Brazil, you basically don't have friends. Oh. <laughs> and I tried really hard. And I, I'm really bad. It's surprising how bad I am considering how much I played. But when I found jiu-jitsu, it's when I was 16, I was like, all right, this is something I'm going to be good at. I don't care what the cost is. I'm going to be good at this. And um, I trained for about a year in Brazil in a small school. And then I moved to Las Vegas. I just finished high school in Brazil. I moved to Las Vegas because that was always the plan was to continue my education here. Um, and uh, when I moved back, my English was very rusty. I didn't go to high school here, so um, I didn't have a lot of friends. So like a very lonely period at the same time because – I didn't know anyone. The only people I knew were people in the gym. And I used to take a bus from North Vegas, if you live very, very far, all the way to Flamingo and Decatur every day. It took me three hours to get to the gym and three hours back. So I'd spend six hours a day in a bus for one training session, right? So it gives an idea of how much more concerned I was with jiu-jitsu than going to college. I'd go to college at night. And, um, man, like I, I was doing that for years, for about a year. And then later, I met Steve De Silva, who's the teacher at the Lewis Pedernera School here in Vegas. And Steve saw me walking on the street one day. He's like, man, where are you going? I'm going home. He's like, man, it's like 110 degrees outside, man. Like, you, you need a ride? I'm like, sure. So he gives me a ride, drives me. I was like, man, you live really far. You do this every day. I'm like, yeah. When he goes, you want to live with me? I'm like, sure. You know, <laughs> so I'm living with Steve. And he, uh, uh, he's the one that really, you know, got it in my head that I could be good at jiu-jitsu one day. Because up to then, I just loved jiu-jitsu. But... I never saw myself as a fighter or a competitor. 
but I've always, I, I just, I was suddenly in love with, absolutely in love with jujitsu and the art. But, you know, Steve really got in my head that I could be good at it. So he played a big role in my, my early years in jujitsu and John Lewis and Gustavo Dantes as well, but uh, primarily Steve. Uh, I want to wind back the clock a little bit before we get ahead of ourselves, Robert. I mean, you were in Brazil for those formative years. I mean, what, did you have any exposure to jiu-jitsu while you were down there before you started training? I mean, what was what was the, the vibe surrounding the sport when you weren't doing it? I know it didn't always have a great reputation. Was that the case for you or, uh, you know, what was it like? I'm just curious. You know, it's such a, a foreign concept to me to be in Brazil and not thinking about jiu-jitsu. <laughs> it's interesting because I had never heard of jiu-jitsu prior to Hoist Gracie. What a lot of people don't understand is that jiu-jitsu, the jiu-jitsu boom began in the United States and Brazil at the same time. It was after Hoist Gracie. The difference is Brazil had plenty of black belts. Not plenty, but like mainly Rio and Manaus. I'm from the countryside of Sao Paulo. That's where I grew up. I had never heard of jiu-jitsu. I didn't even know jiu-jitsu existed. I knew taekwondo. I knew karate. I knew judo. I knew wrestling. It was not popular in Brazil, but I knew it existed. I didn't know jiu-jitsu existed. It was not popular at all. It's like a big myth. That people miss out on. Like, it was not something that you would even hear about. It was after the Valitudo between uh, Jiu Jitsu and Luta Livre in 91 that was broadcasted. That's when it began. It goes a step further with Hoist Gracie. That's when it really blows up. And Hoist Gracie, for some reason, really captured my imagination because I, I was like a very small teenager. I'm like a heavyweight now, but as a teenager, I was like the smallest in my high school. And, uh, you know, Hoist Gracie just captured my imagination, man, because. Here's this skinny guy with a gi on walking into a cage and beating all these big guys. I'm like, who is this guy? So I, I, you know, I could relate to that. You know, I got, you know, being an American in Brazil, like with an American name, like I got picked on a lot in Brazil. Like there's no such, the word bullying doesn't exist in Portuguese, just to give an idea. <laughs> just <laughs> a way of life. <laughs> you can't translate. You can ask any Brazilian to translate bullying and they can't do it because the word doesn't exist. So, you know, um, it is hoist just like capture my imagination. Something about the word jujitsu, this beautiful word. I don't know why those two little eight little letters like it just went so well together. I'm like, what is this, you know? And it really made me curious. And I was I walked into the gym in love with jujitsu before I had started. Like it's hard to explain, but like I I fell in love with it right away, and I knew that it was something I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. Even though I never really saw myself as a fighter slash competitor, it was more like, uh, man, this is incredible. I remember my dad at one point pulling me aside. I was like 19, and he goes, "Rob, you gotta get a job. You gotta start playing karate, kid, and get a real job." You know, and I'm like, "That first of all, it's not karate. It's called jujitsu." <laughs> We've got over this. <laughs> I'm having way too much fun here. I don't care. And it was really looking back, it's kind of reckless because my mindset was all or nothing. Like I was completely okay with like being poor and not having anything. And my fallback plan was always was always like, "I'll teach English in Brazil." Or I'll get a job at McDonald's in the U.S. I got an American passport. Like, I don't care. Like, I was having too much fun with what I was doing. And it was kind of irresponsible, absolutely letting go. And, like, let's see what this takes me. But, um, you know, unfortunately, things went well for me. And, um, yeah, man, like, I, you know, I can't think of a better life. So something I, I wanted to ask you, because something that comes up, uh, I'm sure you've heard it, like, there's a lot of American champs now, but like uh, when a few years ago, when there wasn't that many people who had won ADC, IBJJF, and then people would talk about American world champions, a lot of people count you out. They say, "No, Drysdale is Brazilian." How do you, how do you feel about that uh, that topic? You know, it's funny. I you know, I'm 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 in the middle of this debate since I was like as far as I can remember. Like, some of my early childhood memories are my mom and dad having 
wars at home over cultural differences. My mom's Brazilian, my father's American, right? One of my oldest childhood memories is my mom having a very heated debate with a Mormon missionary over who invented the airplane. Santos Dumont did that. No, my, my, I, my wife is Brazilian. My wife uh, has told me the same thing, that we lie about who invented the airplane. And, and, and it's actually, I've gotten to the bottom of that debate. If you guys want to talk about that one day, because I actually spent like a whole day researching this one. I'm going to get to the bottom. <laughs> yeah. There is an answer. There is an answer to the debate, right? But I'm familiar with this debate since I was like a kid. So my reaction to all of this was like, who cares, man? Like, you don't choose where you're born from. You're, 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 you choose what you do with the time in your life, right? That, those things are up to you. Why be overly proud of the country? You're not, you don't choose where you're born. Like, it's not, like, it's not, I, I, would, I didn't want it to become a huge part of my identity. So I've always, like, I think it's cool that people say, oh, Robert's, like, the second American or whatever. But, like, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it because, I mean, I, I think, I've read some things in judicial that I'm very proud of, that I'm very proud of. But, like, the fact that I'm the second American or third foreigner, because BJ's not the first foreigner, you got to remember that. Jerome Hockey is. BJ's the second foreigner to win the IBJJF Black Belt uh, World Championship. Jerome Hockey's from Angola. He won in 96. Okay. But um, um, I'm the third non, non-Brazilian, non if you count me as American, or it's second American. But it, it, it's just never something I spent a lot of time on. Like, I, I, I think, like, Robbie should use that as a marketing thing. I just never wanted to do that. I didn't want it. I didn't want my – if I was going to be known for something, I wanted to do for my results and, and, and that the, the results that I brought myself, not – so much oh the fact that i was you know american but it's true that at that time when i won the worlds most of my training was done in brazil so maybe that's why they consider me brazilian uh i've lived most of my life in the u.s by now but my formative years were in brazil so many people consider me brazilian even though my first language is english i'm i'm, I'm okay with either or i am very american in some ways and very brazilian in others so as you started uh, becoming a professional and becoming an elite, you were part of a very special uh, generation of people there at Braza and everything. Describe a little bit uh, that that stage of your life as you started getting, you know, things started taking off for you with jiu-jitsu. Um, man, it was, it was incredible because when I moved back to Brazil in 2001, right, I had like a two-year experience here in Vegas, and I moved back to Brazil for a variety of reasons. One of them because I wanted to compete more often. And at the time, just to give an idea where jiu-jitsu was in 2000, there were two competitions a year in California, none in Vegas. There were two competitions a year. It was a Copa Pacifica and the Joe Marrero Invitational. That was it, right? And and then Grappler's Quest was starting like right around the time I was leaving. So I, I, I wanted to compete more at that point. I was very sure of what I wanted to do with my life. And Brazil had competitions like every other weekend if you were willing to drive. So I moved back and uh, I trained at Paulo Strecker. I got I won the world's the purple belt there under Paulo Strecker in Maromba. When I got my brown belt, I started training with uh, Terere, Damian Maia, Leo Vieira, Eduardo Tellis. Right around the time they left Alliance, um, I actually went to Fabio Gugel's school once. It was very good training, but I feel I had more in common with like Leo and Tellis and Damian. Personally, I think we just related more to the guys. So I started training with them right around the time when they split. And what we went on to create is what I consider to be – I mean, everyone considers their team to be the best team of all time. But like I, when I think of Braza – I think that, like, I don't think of a better time. I mean, maybe Carlson Gracie in the 80s and 90s, you know, it comes close. I, that's the only thing I can think of because we had what today is uh, my team, Zenith, me with Kavaka. Atus, Atus was, came out of Braza as well. Uh, Czech Matt came out of uh, Braza as well. Braza itself, which still exists. Telis is school. So if you combine all those points at the World Championships, like, we're like, we're, we would double the second place. You know, in, in 2006, Braza won the world. We had like 30-some competitors, and we beat Baja Gracie. They had over 100, 100-something, 100 whatever. We had like 30, and we won the whole thing. 
you know, when ADCC, I consider our ADCC performance, not because I was in it, because, I mean, just look at the numbers. I don't think it's ever been matched. I don't think it ever will. We had five competitors, and we brought home seven trophies. So we had five competitors. We brought home seven trophies. I've, I I don't think there's ever going to be a team performance in the history of the season that's going to be able to replicate that. You know, um, so, you know, five competitors, seven trophies, that's very significant. So to me, Braza really was the best jiu-jitsu team of all time. It's unfortunate that we couldn't keep it together. Um, too many chefs in the kitchen, if you ask me. It's a common problem in BJJ. But uh, BJJ is still a very young sport, so we're all learning. And I think Braza was a moment of a lot of good friends training hard together. The training was excellent, the level, the spirit, the energy. But when it came to as soon as things became business-oriented, it got very complicated very fast. And that was, I mean, long story short, that's what happened. Yeah, I mean, so many people uh... – I mean, if you count all the guys that came out of the TT school after that, too, I mean, so many legends in the sport right now, and then their students who are, who are killing it came through that lineage, right? Yeah. But TT was part of Braza, too. Like, I forgot yeah. to mention TT, but, you know, TT as well. So it was, we were all in the same roof. And um, I remember well how we formed. I remember, like, I remember bringing Andre Galvão to Tiddy's gym. Like, he came through, he didn't know Tiddy. I introduced him to Tiddy. Really? And, uh, I knew Andre from the tournament, right? Who else? Like Lucas Lechi, Damien was training with us like consistently. Like, he was one of the founders as well. Um, man, so many guys. The Mendes brothers were like blue belts. I don't remember yeah. them. I, and I got an eye for this stuff. I remember like, those kids would be really good. I don't remember <laughs> if the purple belt, brown belt maybe. And Hoffman Mendes would have been like a yellow belt. And I remember him like arm barring everyone from close guard. No bearing bolos, just arm bar from close guard, arm bars and triangles. So he did a yellow belt. They're like up like a <laughs> And it was like, man, this is really good. You can see it. It was just like in there, you know, just had this aura. It was just very obvious. And, um, man, it was just good times, man. Like, I have a lot of good memories of that period. We used to, it's funny because we, we, no one had, no one, there was no money in the sport, you know, so you really did it out of passion. There's no recognition. There's no, I mean, I mean, I don't even know if YouTube existed, but we never used it. Uh, certainly no social media, you know, maybe, or could. Not even MySpace, you know, because like yeah. pre, Dark pre Instagram. <laughs> yeah, but we really did it because, you know, I there was no prize at the end. It was just, you know, it was something very uh, pure about what we did. And I sound like an old man, I know, but um, I, I cherish those days. Like, there's a lot of nostalgia. And um, if I could relive any period of my life over and over and over, that would be it. Yeah, it's uh, we had Lepri on here last week, and he was talking about he was like a purple belt during those days. And he's like, yeah. Uh, Gavao was a brown belt and Langi was a purple belt and it's like all these and he was talking about the, the Mendez brothers and Ari Farias were like juveniles and it's just like that was like the color belts of that team that's just insane yeah. these guys are all Hall of Famers now yeah and um, and it's funny because no one had any idea of how it was going to blow up and then I think you guys play a big role IBJJF certainly like a number of things had to fall in place for Jiu Jitsu to grow as fast as it's growing right after the coronavirus at least <laughs> but um, um it's uh, it's in the because no one ever thought of it that way, you know. Like no one thought about like I know how much footage I have in my matches, zero. I don't have a single one of my matches. I never cared. I don't even know where my medals are, man. Like I know they're somewhere. I saw I know someone threw them away. I don't even know where they are because I never saw it that way. It was always like you know what's the when's the next tournament? You know we get it. Like sometimes we drive for twenty four hours to go to one tournament in Brazil, but we would compete like every weekend, every other weekend. There's one time one year in Brazil, I think it was two thousand one, competed thirty one tournaments in one year. Yeah, just to give you an idea. Wow. So you, you got your black belt from Leo, correct? Correct. Had you Leo been training a, Had he been your instructor? I know there was a bunch of, like you said, a lot of chefs in the kitchen. Had Leo been your instructor or was it just, how did that work out? 
I started with Tiddity and just, just, you know, speaking frankly, I think Tiddity is like the best jujitsu coach I've ever seen. Hands down. But uh, me and Tiddity didn't always meet eye to eye. You know, I had a really difficult relationship with Tiddity and I like him. We're friends, you know, but like it was, we were very different people. Like me and Tiddity, like, we couldn't be more different as human like me and Tiddity. We just never got along on a personal level. But as he did teach me a lot, as far as being a coach, I think he's probably the best coach I've ever seen. Like he's, he, he had a, a mindset for competition and grinding and working hard. And the energy in the room was insane, man. Like the energy is hard to describe how incredible it was. You know, we would have wars in there, but as soon as it was over, we're brothers, you know, there's no hard feelings, no emotions, you know, like it was emotional while the round was going. As soon as it was over, boom, the emotions would end and we're brothers again. But, you know, like, so Tiddity was very uh, influential in my life. But I could see him like losing it, like like before he had the incident on the airplane. Um, I was the first one to leave, by the way. Like, I, I could see like this is not going to end well. I could see that the path where he was going and the people he was hanging out with, and and like I don't like this whole you know kind of like the trip that they were having. Like I was like I'm not I'm 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 out. And I and Tidid and Leo were not doing great at that time, so I started training with Leo. Had no students. I think Lucas Leach was a purple belt. Leandro Vieira was a brown, and he barely trained. So it was pretty much me and Lucas Leche training every day. That's probably why I'd say the person I've trained with the most throughout my life was Lucas Leche. That's where the Dars come from. I was training with Lucas in his half guard. Like, it's impossible yeah. to pass the So I got good at the Dars because of him. So I got him to thank for that. But, um, um, but like, yeah, I started training with Leo after that. And me and Leo had more in common, I feel, as people. Um, I got along with him better. Even though, like, the time the training wasn't great because it was literally just me and Lucas. And I trained with Leo, you know, sometimes. He was just, like, one of those guys. He can put a gi on once a month and still beat everyone. He's just, like, you know, a little freak. But, um, you know, later other people came. And then Andre Galvão left it a day later as well. And Amon Lemos and all those guys came after. But it was uh, – you know, Leo played a very important role in a very difficult time in my life. Because, like, when Tiddy was, like – when I left it, I didn't want to train jiu-jitsu. It was, like, the only time in my life I didn't want to train anymore. Like, I don't, it just like felt like one of those things. And we're like, this is how it is. Like, I don't want to be part of this, you know? And then uh, when I started training with Leo, um, it was a very, it was the right time, I think. Cause like, I don't, I don't know if I would have quit, but I was considering it. Like, I didn't train for two weeks and that never happened. Man. Never, never. So it was, I was considering it. And, um, but like, I remember there's like, there's an issue of Gracie Magazine. And Gracie Magazine was the flow of the time. There was like Gracie Magazine at that time, nothing else. If you're in the States, you wanted a copy of Gracie Magazine so you could try to translate the U.S. Portuguese things because you couldn't get a hold of anything. That's how you would up with stuff. It was like, you know. So there was an interview that Leo gave in Gracie Magazine. I never forgot this because, um, like, who are the biggest prospects in jiu-jitsu? The two big names in, in, the, in the time of Homo Luba Hall and Andrew Hall were all part of the same thing. And, uh, and, like, everyone was saying Homo Luba Hall and Andrew Hall, and then Leo says, and Leo was like, to me, the best guy. Like, everyone they asked, the one that to me was the best one was Leo. And said, Robert Dreiser, like, oh. like that, it, that was the moment where I was like, man, I'm not kidding this. Like, this guy thinks I'm the, big, the biggest promise in jiu-jitsu. Like, Leo here, the best. He thinks that I'm the biggest name in jiu-jitsu, the biggest promise in jiu-jitsu. I'm like, that's it. I'm not kidding. Like, and then uh, from then onwards, I won the world. I got filled, and then I lost two finals to Roger. Um, kind of happy about that. At the time, I was like, oh, I'm happy. And then ADCC and then MMA. So these are the important moments. So then you go, you, you win your uh, your first world world title in 2005. And, uh, this, yeah, as a black belt. So this is back when it was in the uh, Tijuca Tennis Club and everything. It was still in Brazil. 
Let's talk about this uh, experience of, uh, you know, going and getting that Black Belt World title. Maybe describe the tournament, the lead-up to it, afterwards, all that. Um, I, You know what? I think that the turning point in my, my jiu-jitsu life was 2006. But in 2005 of the year, I, I, I won the, 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 the world. And, you know, looking back, like I'm proud of it, of course, but I won it with tactics. I won some matches by submission, but like my mindset really changed in 2006. We can talk about that later, but... 2005, I don't remember all the matches. I fought some tough guys. Man. Like I, I remember, um, I, I won't beat Boy in the final. Fabio Leopoldo was in the bracket. I can't remember I, all those. I, I saw that there was yeah. two Baja, there was two Baja guys in the semifinals. I don't know if you fought uh, Lagardo or Fabio Leopoldo. I don't. I fought Lagardo in the semifinal. Who is a good friend of mine till this day. Shout out to Lagardo. He's a good guy. And then uh, beat Boy in the final. Boy was a guy I was scared of because, like, Boy had, like, a really good reputation. Because he doesn't compete a lot. People don't know him in the U.S. But you ask anyone who has trained with Boy, like, oh, that boy. Because, like, he's the guy that would be smashing when in practice, right? And I beat him twice that year. I beat him, like, the week before at the World Cup, right? In the semifinal. And then I beat Margarita in the final. That year, I was the only black belt to win the World Cup in the IBJJF. Um and then it was like a moment of like confidence for me because, hey, man, I just want like the most important just tournament on the planet. You know, it was like one of those turning points in my in my in my life, and it was a good experience. Man. Like I dream about that title uh, always. Uh, you know, of course, I would have liked to have one more title as a black belt, but this little annoying thing called Roger Gracie didn't know how to get past at the time, and, and <laughs> not, I'm not happy about it. What am I going to do, man? I'm like another victim. <laughs> what can I do? Did uh. <laughs> Did that uh, Black Belt World title change your life? Uh, a few th- a few athletes have uh, told us that it didn't. The, uh, the result wasn't what they expected when they became a Black Belt World champion. Basically, it doesn't. It's a true story. They got full of it, but it's a true story. I was in Brazil at the time, 2005. I had my school in Itu. Itu is a small city outside of São Paulo. It's very provincial. It's a historic town. Nothing happened there. Like when I go back, I'm like, how could I have lived there? Like this is the worst place on earth. But, um, you know, I, I had 20 students. I won the world as a black belt, and I had one ADCC, in fact. And I had 20 students. So that amounts to about three, 400 highs a month. At the time, that's like less than $100 today, a month. And I thought I was making it. And I'm like, I got to get out of here. Man. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, I just won the two most prestigious titles in the world, Dean and Nogi, and I have 20 students. Like, this is insane. So a good friend of mine called Sean Rigo, he convinced me to move to Vegas. Like, we got to get out of here. Let's, let's, let's go to the States. You're American. People are going to love you. Let's get out of Brazil. And I'm like, yeah, probably a good idea. I can't be making 100 bucks a month forever. You know? So it didn't change my life initially. It's only when I moved to Vegas that things began to change for me. Um, I don't regret the change at all, but I do miss um, you know, that journey in Brazil as a competitor with not, nothing else to look forward to but the next weekend and the next competition is taking place. And like that right there, I miss a lot. So... You said after your 2005 title that in 2006 you sort of uh, sounded like you had a, a different outlook mentally on competition. You said you felt really strategic in 2005. What changed in 2006? Um, I think that that's when I, I realized something about grappling that I, I we're like we're told these stories. So for example, we're, when we're little, when we start training, we're told that this this is this is going back to history. Like this goes back to the Russo-Japanese war. The Japanese are already playing this market card. They go. The small can defeat the strong, right? The small Japan defeats the large Russia, you know? The Japanese really use that as a marketing tool to blow up judo slash jiu-jitsu around the world. Like, this is something that technique levers everything. 
And I had that in my head, the strength and athleticism. Like, oh, it's a bad thing. You don't want to be athletic, right? And I've always been like mediocre. I've never been the fastest or the strongest, but I've been like the weakest either, right? But like I had that in my head that the, the physical attributes that people have are bad. Technique is critical. Technique is key, right? And at some point that around that time, it was, I think I'm going to tell my thought rather than Gracie, really, because and I lost in the final end, because I realized this is a guy who's clearly highly technical, right? But he's also stupid strong. We'll get a second there. We've been fed a load of nonsense. Come on, like, this is important. And at that point, it's like, okay, strength and condition is actually important. Being in shape is important. Being strong is important. Being fast and flexible is important. And another thing that clicked when I was just like one of those things, like, aggression is technique. There's no such thing as aggression is isolated from anything else. Like, good technique is intelligent use of your physical attributes plus aggression. Right? You cannot hit a double in slow motion. You can try. It's not going to work. I don't care how technical it is. If it's in slow motion, it doesn't work. You can try to throw a jab in slow motion see if it lands. It doesn't land. It has to be fast and precise. So the time and speed and power of things are important. And I've also viewed physical attributes and techniques as two different, different orgs. Like they don't, there's no correlation. And around that time, I started looking at this and I'm going, there's clearly a correlation between physical attributes and technique. And now my definition of technique is the intelligent use of your physical attributes. So if you use your flexibility intelligently, let's say with the rubber guard or almost product and close guard, that's technique. When Mike Musumesti is very strong and precise about his grips, that's physical attributes. He's got very strong hands, but it's also technique, right? So technique is just using your body in an intelligent way. So when I became more aware of this, I started being like, okay, you know, I have to make myself more aggressive. Like when I, you know, when I train, when I prepare. So once I started doing that, I had like much better results. Like I started setting goals in my head. And I, this is at a time where I wasn't driving to Sao Paulo anymore. I was training with like my blue belt for me too because I didn't have a car to drive to Sao Paulo. So I'm training with blue belts and purples every day, but I'd set goals in my head where I'd go, I'm going to make this guy tap five times this round. Ten minute round, they got to tap a minimum of five times. And I started training with that number in my head. I have to make them tap, right? Because I had this concern of going back to Sao Paulo a year later and getting smashed by everyone because they're training with like black belts, right? And I'm training with blue belts. And this is going on for about a year I didn't have a car. And uh, so I'm training with my blue, my poor guys. Like, I'm like killing them. Like, wow, are you mad at me? I'm like, I'm going to these guys in practice, right? And that's when I started developing new techniques and new simulations. And my game become, became a lot more aggressive. It's funny because when I went back to Sao Paulo and I did get a car and I would go back to training there, like, I was doing better than they were. Like, I actually went up a level just training with blue belts, which to me was something I never thought would be possible. But it was like my mindset that changed. And I can't give you a good reason other than just me being more aware of how important aggression I started looking at aggression as technique. So had you adopted that mindset then going into 2007 ADCC? Was that like a switch that you had made in the, in the lead up to that? Or was it still oh, kind of in development then? 100%. Like I think I never counted my submission ratio. I wouldn't know to be honest. Like I'd say maybe throughout my life maybe 50% would be my guess. But like from 2005, 6, 7 onwards it definitely went it was much higher because I, I, I became more, jiu-jitsu has always been position over submission, right? Position, submission, position, submission. And I think that's true for the most part. But I started getting into the mindset, well, like, why? Like, why can't you submit before you position? Uh, where, why, where, can I, where can I start submitting people without out-positioning them? This guy's guard is way too hard to pass. Can I go for a darts? Can I go for a cradle? Can I go for a footlock, right? So I started looking at, uh, you know, maybe trying to, like, change that, that recipe a little bit and, just became more aggressive as a whole because of that. Uh, it was a big game changer for some reason. Like in my head, for some reason, I don't know if you ever had this. Like 
like something happened and just like a little switch, right? And you go from, okay, I'm like a decent good, I'm a good black group, but like I want to be one of the best. Like what what is missing? Um, losing Roger is a big part of that because that's how he fought, and I could see it. That's like he he, he incorporated that mentality, right? Of intelligent use of his physical attributes. So that's and, and if you look at high level grappling, that's what it is. Like you know, Kyle Teha might be a little, but that doesn't mean he's not strong. How many times did you uh, fight Hodger in your career? Three. Was that Never like what? What kind of motivation was that for you? Like you have like you know the greatest of all time, basically the Terminator as one of your rivals. Like what kind of motivation was that for you back then? At the time, it was like death, man. Like I couldn't score an advantage on the guy, you know. And I was like murdering people in practice. I go to the gym, and I'm not bragging; it's the truth. Like I go months without anyone scoring a point with me in practice. Like months, like no one scored a point on me. Like I just like you know whatever I wanted to do. And then I'm going against this guy, and I can't score a point on him. Man, like this is like what am I doing wrong? Like my now I know technically there are a number of problems, mindset, there's a number of things that could have been different, right? But what's captain hindsight, right? Hindsight. And um, you know, I, I started, you know, I became more and more aware of a lot of these things, but you know, I, I think it was an eye opener because I take those losses. I will not trade my silver medal for gold. And I know it sounds like I'm full of it, like, well, of course you would prefer gold. At the time, yes. Now no, because you know, you 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 learn that it's not it's okay to lose. Like you learn that over time. You go like you don't want to lose at the time. No one's trying to lose. But man, you learn a lot from losses. And I know it's cliche to say that, you know, I win or you learn, right? But like there are life lessons that I feel that a victory would have not have taught me. The problem with victory is this. There's a problem with victory. Is you're in complete denial about your mistakes. Now, when you win, you made thousands of mistakes, but you're so in love with your performance and with the pat on the back and everyone telling you how awesome you are and the medal and the podium and all that. That you, there's no self-reflection in victory, all right? When you lose, there's plenty of self-reflection. And that's how you get better. You get better by thinking about the problems you have, like the mistakes you've made. And that's, you know, to me, losing was that because it was a game changer in the sense where there was a lot of self-reflection. Like, I'm clearly not doing things right. I got to do it even better. And I think it made me a better instructor in some ways because I became more aware of these things. So I emphasize this when I teach. I'm very, very... Um, you know, like anyone's been in my class of seminars, like, no, I, I, I try not to teach just technique, but mindset, because that's the most important element. Like, we're always talking about body and, and, and technique. You know, get in shape and be strong and good technique and learn moves. Okay, obvious. What if you don't believe in yourself? Like, what's, what's that? What are these components that, that make you believe in yourself? And I think self reflection is what leads to that. You know, like, what, why do you get into the mindset of being a champion? Why is it amazing grapplers? I know people that are way better than me. Like I can name names, like people that are far better than me technically, but they haven't done, haven't won half of what I've won, you know? And it's not, it's just because I think that somewhere in there, they're just lacking that. They, they're confident on the outer layer, right? But deep down, like at the bottom of it, they're very insecure, you know? And like, how do you change that? And I can't think of any other way you can change this spirit unless you're like with a lot of self-reflection and, and, you know, and there's no better way to self-reflect than to lose. That's that's the thing. That's like the uh, untapped thing in the sport, right? Is the mental like some of these guys are just mentally on a level that just puts them. Everybody's good. I say it all the time. Everybody's they're all really skilled. They're all in great shape. But some guys are just on that level mentally where they go out there. Like uh, someone that pops up in my head is like Marigali right now. When Marigali goes out to compete, he has that confidence in his head like nobody can touch him. You can just see it. And there's other guys who are just as skilled as him, but. That, it, 
I don't know. It's, it's something hard to figure out. I mean, a prime example of someone with some problems is Urbirth, right? Urbirth on, on the right day, the right Urbirth is, is a terrifying human being. But on the wrong day, he sometimes taps to, to position or something, yeah. you know? You just, it's hard to understand. But, yeah, it, what, what's interesting about the mindset challenge is I feel like different athletes require different sort of um, levels of comp- – or things to, that inspire confidence. Not everyone's the same way. I mean – what is how do you sort of tap into to building someone's confidence, Robert? I mean, you're a coach now. You're trying to build up athletes. What do you do with somebody to start working on the mental game? It's hard, man, because it's like one of those things. Some things are very hard to teach, whether they're genetic or cultural. Like that's that's a deeper conversation that you know we don't have an answer to. But you know, I, I know people that are born fighters. Like they don't have to talk about confidence; they just are. Right? I've seen that. And then I've seen like people right? I was not. Like I to me, maybe I'm more aware of this. Maybe I can understand it better because to me, it was a grind to become confident. It was an uphill battle. I was very inspired. I used to cry before tournaments. Like not go to bed. Like I was I don't even like how do we know how I managed to compete so much or fight him in May for that matter when I was like so scared of it. Like, you know. But but I've seen people like you know, you ever seen someone do a move and you ask them, Can you show me what you're doing? And they do it perfectly. And you're like, no, 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 slow it down. Show me what you're doing. They're like, no, I'm doing this. No, 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 no. no. What's your you're trying to get them to stand do it, right? And I've seen that. Like, I, I mean, I'm not going to mention names, but I've had people do stuff like, man, show me what you're doing. They have no idea what they're doing. They just do it, right? They're not aware of it. Whereas, like, when you teach, you have to break down technique. You better under you understand better these things. I think that when a lot of self reflection, you begin to understand why you're scared and what confidence means. And confidence is not talking about it. It's like asking yourself all the important questions. Like, how do I become, how do I begin to believe in myself? So I don't think there's a recipe because we're all different, right? But what worked for me a lot was I would daydream about jujitsu, man, hours a day, hours and hours and hours. Like everyone who knows me knows I have ADD. And like people are talking and half the time I'm not even paying attention to what they're saying because I'm just like thinking about jujitsu or something else, right? And it's, it was a way of like, what you do is like, I've always compared the mind to like a computer, right? So you think of consciousness as, as the programmer, the back of the mind or program, the software. Throughout the day, if you're constantly programming your mind for victory and positive outcomes, like your mind is going to take that as the truth. Like this is what's supposed to happen. Your mind is just taking in what you're coding, right? And I'm not talking about the universe and the secret, none of that. I don't believe that there's anything supernatural going on. But I think that when the time comes to sprawl on that shot, no matter how tired or nervous you are, your mind reacts automatically the right way because you've been through that situation a million times and there's only one outcome in your head. Sprawl. There's no other outcome. There's no one taking me down in my head. In my head, no one takes me down. In my head, no one submits me. In my head, no one can beat me. And I believe that because I, I, I see it so much in my head, it becomes the truth. It's like a lie. You lie to yourself enough to end up believing it. That works for everything. So if you see yourself winning every second of every day, guess what? You know, there's no other outcome. Like to me, like in my mind, I always stop myself whenever I saw myself losing or getting swept or getting taken down. My way of dealing with this was like interrupting that negative thought and immediately getting on track with the victory one. Like I have to make sure I win in my head because if I can't see it up here, there's no way I'm going to be able to do it out there. So that's where confidence would come from. It was like that almost like convincing yourself that you're much better than you actually are. I'd actually tell myself to lie, like I'm the best in the world. I never was, but I'd tell myself that. And I'd repeat that in my head, I'm the best in the world. I can't lose, it's impossible, I'm the best in the world. And if you say that enough, like you end up kind of believing it. And it's it, it, it helps because it's the way of like getting your mind where it has to be in order for you to succeed. 
And that has nothing to do with technique per se. It's, it's, it, I think it's harder than learning. Techniques are easy to learn. It's like that little key ingredient that people struggle with, you know. Um, that, that worked for me. I don't, I don't know if it would work for everyone, but that's what worked for me. I mean, some people. So something that we got to talk about is your, I mean, there's not many ADCC absolute champions out there. It's a very special title to achieve. You did it in 2007. You took third in your weight class. You lost to Zanji, but then uh, you put together that run in ADCC. And, I, I mean, it's a pretty special one. You submitted maybe the two best guys in ADCC history and Andre Galvao and Marcelo Garcia in that absolute. So maybe talk about the experience of that tournament, maybe like how you felt after the weight, going into the absolute, and then the run there and how, how things played out. Um, I remember well the camp leading up that tournament. Like I, as I mentioned, I've always like confidence is something that's always been an uphill battle for me. Like it was never easy. I was always the guy to be nervous before a tournament. I didn't want to fight. I probably could have competed more, and I dealt better with anxiety. Uh, had someone to push me. Maybe I think some ingredients. Like I had coaching some periods of my life. I missed coaching in other periods of my life. I was I was I'm largely self-taught, you know, unfortunately. I'd had coaches, but many periods of my life I was completely alone, training myself. And um, you know, but like leading up to DCC, like it was really my friends, man. Like it was really people around me. It was my my girlfriend at the time, Michelle. Um, you know, it was Leo, it was Damien, it was, you know, it was Lucas, it was Poncho, and people that like, you know, they were telling me like, no, you're gonna win the weight class in the open. And I'm like, no way. I mean, like, if I went, if I took third, I'd be so happy. You know, I, I, I'm not gonna think I can't house. He needs to I'm not gonna take third place. That's the best thing that happens. Third place. But they were like, no, Rob. Like, if you don't win ADCC, no one else will. Because like, I was doing so well in practice. But even though I was doing well in practice, I was still, you know, in my head, very insecure, right? And um, it was it was an uphill battle, man. But like that day, I remember, man. Like my match with um, with Shunji, I think it was the first match of the day. Right, so I'm not making excuses, but I didn't warm up well. And Shunja that day, he had this trap started right about here, and his traps ended here on the shoulder. <laughs> he still looks like that. He's like 40 years old. No, 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 no. He's, he was, dude, and like I get him in a guillotine, which is a move like I'm doing to everyone. I'm just catching in practice, like every day was my move, right? And I jump close guard, and Shunji, Shunji, man, you can't outsmart the guy. He just slams me and pulls his head out, scores the two. I'm like, no. <laughs> So I, I lost to Shunji in the, semi, on the, in the semifinal. And then my match for third place, I beat Kakareku, who's the guy who beat me in 2005, lost to Roger in the final. It was like one of the toughest components at the time. I cut it back, back transition that I still use a lot. And so that was a big win. Like, okay, I took third. I don't know why, but they invited me to the Open. Normally they invite the people who win and lose the final or win the whole thing, right? And I think that my friends were like in their ears, like, hey, man, you got to get Robert in. You got to get Drive in. You got to get – they invited me to the Open. And I'm like, I did put my name because they insisted because I wasn't going to. And they insisted. And I'm like, all right, I put my name down. And then they selected me. I don't know why. I'm like, okay. And then um, I beat Big Mac, uh, the triangle, first match. I beat David Avalan in the second match. You know, David had just beaten Shanji and he had a war with Shanji. So I can't take too much credit. I never like to take credit for that match because he had a harder first fight in the open than I did. Um, in the sense of like physically, right? Like he, like him and Shandy went to war, like three or four overtime or whatever. And then uh, Andre and then Garcia in the final. And I'm like, I always say this, I'm the original Garcia fan. I was a fan of Marcelo Garcia when he was a purple belt. I was a blue belt. I used to watch him. I'm like, this guy's incredible. You know, like he's got, I don't have beautiful jiu-jitsu. I never did. Like my jiu-jitsu is like works, but it's not beautiful. Garcia's got beautiful jiu-jitsu. It's art. It's just like, 
guys like him and Rafa Mendes and Musso Messi, I could just keep watching them over and over again. It's how do you how can you make it that pretty? I would wish I could fight like that. You know, but so I, I know his game inside out and I remember vividly this because like it's it's just one of those memories that you could still live. I'm warming up in before the final with Garcia and my best friend at the time, Sean Rico, he's trying to get me to do yoga. Like I think he wants to sit in the lotus position or something and breathe in and breathe out. And I'm like smiling. I remember like just walking around like almost giggling like an idiot. And he's like, Man, you're in the most this is the most important fight of your life. Like focus. Like you gotta stay focused. And he's just trying to get me to do breathing exercises and visualize. And I'm just like walking around smiling. And I go smiling because like in my head, I already won that match. Like I, I know how good this guy is, but I think he's better than me, to be honest. But if I fight him a hundred times today, I'm going to beat him a hundred times. Like it's just not, it's not, there's no question. I guess it's hard to explain like being that confident. I've never been that, like that particular moment, one of those few moments I've ever experienced in my career where I, was so confident like i don't i don't see him beating me that day you know like it's just hard because like it's no matter how what scenario i played in my head i just couldn't see him beating me all right so i walked in there very very confident he's got a very good single that's his main takedown and i knew he was going to shoot it because i wasn't going to pull guard so the first time he shot in i defended the second time he shot it i didn't feel it the first time the second time he shot it i went for the darts which I used to call Bravo Choke at the time. I didn't know that there was a name for it called Darce. I learned that later. Apparently, I thought I invented the move. I did. I think someone in New York had done it earlier. One of Henzo's students, I think his name is Darce. Yeah, Darcy. I started doing that in Brazil as an extension of the Bravo Choke that Leo would do. And I developed that training with Lucas Leite. So in my head, I had invented that move. And I started doing it from the front headlock a lot too. But um, yeah, so I, it was a move that I was doing in practice all the time. You know, where it's just small and he's got narrow shoulders. So I think, man, that Darce would fit. I think that single leg is 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 going to be my, my key to that Darce. And um, it the match the, the match uh, uh, it happened exactly as I had visualized it before the fight. Like it was like like you know to a T. You know, it's almost like I was just replaying something that already happened. That's why like, I'm such a big fan of visualization. Looking back in my career, I'm able to remember these moments where I could visualize a match so vividly. That when it takes place, it takes place exactly how I imagined it. Not always, of course. But that was the case. <laughs> You're being too but, humble, Robert. You re- you really you really glossed over the fact that you submitted Andre Galvao in the semifinals. Or yeah, then in the semifinals I beat Andre. <laughs> what an incredible run! Uh, Andre, I'm a I'm a big Andre fan too because Andre has something that I've never had. He he absolutely loves to compete. You know, and I'm like, I wish I were like that, man. I hated competing. I never liked it. I never liked it. I, till this day, like my last fight, I'm still like, it's the last time I'm fighting. I've told that myself a million times. Every tournament, I tell myself, this is the last time I'm doing this. I'm never going through this again. And then I do it again and again. I'm like, it's a, I think it's a miracle that I fought as much as I fought because I hated every second of it. A guy like Andre just loves competition, man. I'm like, I, I wish I had that. I don't know how do you how do you become that? Maybe I don't I don't know if there's a way to do that. But with me, it was just like either myself or people around me pushing me to compete. They were literally like, "Man, get your butt on the mats and you train a lot. You deserve to win. Go out there." I'm like, uh, "Okay, I'll go." You know, but it was maybe more forced than anything. It wasn't natural, you know. But you know, Andre's just like one of those guys that absolutely loves to compete. And um, we had trained together you know, before. Like I've known him since I, I fought Andre the first time as a blue belt. 
when I had just moved back from Las Vegas to Brazil. He was one of my first opponents. We fought in the open. He was a featherweight, believe it or not. Wow. I was like middle at the time. I was a middleweight, I believe. You know, I was a lot younger. And I got like I got like heavier as I got older, you know, but I started as a lightweight in jiu-jitsu, believe it or not. Andrew was like a featherweight. And I, so I fought with the So I always knew him from tournaments because we always in the same tournaments, right? He competed. He was like one of those, just like me, like a, a tournament junkie. Like it didn't matter where there was a competition. If you had to drive 10 hours, you have to drive 10 hours. Right? We would just go whenever, wherever there's a competition. So I've, I've known him since he was a blue belt. And I brought him to to to, uh, to train with Tidididid. And uh, so no one wants to fight a teammate, but ADCC doesn't like finals with teammates. So they always make sure that you meet in the semifinal. So. That's the story of it. And that's because Damian Maya almost interested to enter that open too. Like he was about to enter. I think he was invited. And then last second someone like, oh no, there's there's like you know, have three team on the um, at the open. So, so they, they, they call Damian. Obviously ADCC absolutes uh, I mean it's about as big as it gets in this sport as far as accomplishments. Uh how did that feel winning it? I mean, like to me it was you know, like when I see people um like um I don't know, like, for example, I'm trying to think here. You see some people win and they don't even make a big deal of it because they're so confident. They kind of like, so I, yeah, I was confident for that fight. But like leading up my life, I was never confident. You know, it was always, like I said, it was always uphill for me. So to me, like, it took me a while to think, and I just won ADCC open weight class. I came here to fight for third place and I've been happy, you know, but that's how I, things work in my head is like, I normally do better than I think I'm going to do. Like they tend to be very hard on myself and sometimes pessimistic about things. Uh, it's like a character fault. But you know, uh, when Andy Cecil was like, "Wait a second, what did I just do here?" And like it took me like two, three days to really like, like for it to sink in. I'm like, I just went open weight class Andy Like I'm just, I was just happy I got invited. Like I was just excited to be there. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm the top 16 in the world. When I was invited in 2005 for the first time, a little bit of privilege there because as you know, ADCC doesn't like they, they try to limit the they never like have like people from multiple nationalities right and there were so many brazilians in my bracket i have two passports so like i got in with my american passport you know and so it kind of helped me a little bit there being born in the u.s but um you know i was just happy to be part of the top 16 like i was like i'm the top 16 in the world this is insane i'm one of the top 16 in the world like to me that was the accomplishment but i walked in there in 2005 like so happy about being there i forgot that i actually should be trying to win you know, and in 2007, I had a very different mindset, but still there's a part of me that was always like that guy that's in awe, like, holy shit, I'm fighting Shondi Rivero, man. I can't, this guy's a superhero, man. I'm fighting him? Holy cow. You know, like I'm always in awe of being around people that I admire so much, you know? Um, and then like, I got do something like I was surprised myself by beating some of these guys. And I'm going, you know, it's uh, that's why it was it was always like, uh, it was something I struggled with a lot, but I got better over time. You know, and uh, that's why when people talk about Robin very secure, like I don't, I don't know what's going on inside your head, man. But there is a way to improve because I, I know I've gotten better over time. So there is a way to improve on that as well, like anything else. You do. We don't have a, a ton of time left, but I'd be remiss not to ask about MMA. You know, was that on your mind at the time? Um, after, I mean, when did you decide to, to pursue that aspiration, and um, what are your feelings about it today? Um, I, when I started training jiu-jitsu, man, like, the, as I mentioned, like Gracie Magazine, in fact, Tommy with a big magazine, right? And they, you know, you had to go, it, it, you couldn't find a magazine that just talked about MMA and jiu-jitsu or Vali Tudo at the time in jiu-jitsu. It was the same thing. I never made a distinction between Brazilian jiu-jitsu and Vali Tudo or mixed martial arts. 
it was the same thing. It was, it was an extension. In my head, it was white, blue, purple, brown, black, Harley Tudo. That was like the, in my head, I get my black one, then I'm going to fight in the ring. I never, like today, the worlds are so separate from one another that we see them as, you know, they're completely different sports. But at the time, they weren't. So when I trained, I always trained with Buddy Tudor in mind. There was a minute that I got good at Spider Guard. But then I was like, you know what, man? I, I, need, to be, I need to be good at Butterfly and other things. That's what's going to work in a fight. Spider Guard is not going to work in a minute. So I started training more Nogi. And I started like, thinking more about being on top more. And I had MMA in mind. So MMA, you know, once I, I won the world in the Gi and I won ADCC, I'm like, I can read, I can do what all my friends are doing and redo this. I can win another world title maybe. I can maybe win another ADCC. Or I can see, like, what's the next chapter? What comes after this? So in my head, there was always a hierarchy. Like, Gi, no Gi, and MMA. Like, that's how I always envisioned things in my head. So I wanted to move on to the next step. Um, I... Um, I fought, I think I, I started as an MMA coach. I was coaching UFC, got champions before I even fought myself, you know, but it's kind of like backwards. My career was all wrong. You know, it wasn't, it was very poorly planned, but uh, I was doing well. I won all my fights by first round submission. And then I failed, I got into the UFC. I failed a drug test, testosterone. And, um, you know, uh, something that like took a, a big hit on my career because of that, more because I didn't want to be around the people. It wasn't the fact that I got cut. I knew I could get back in there in a heartbeat. Like, it's two more fights and I'm back in there. That's not even a question. But I didn't want to be around the crowd anymore. It was like the, it was the reporters. It was the, the show business side of things. It's just all of it. It's like, I don't want to be around this anymore. Man. Like, these people never stepped foot in the gym. They're judging me. Do they remember when I was taking a bus for practice three hours each way every day? They don't, they don't know about that, but they want to judge me. You've never stepped foot in the gym. Who are you to judge me? I don't know you. I don't owe you an apology. I was like, oh, write a, write a public apology. I'm like, I don't know these people. I apologize to you. We trained them. I'm not going to apologize to trainers. No way. So like, I just don't want to do it anymore. You know? And uh, I just moved away from it. And I'm, but I'm really happy I did it because fighting was something that was very hard for me because, like I said, it was mentally exhausting. And I overcame that. Um, and um, I'm happy that, like, I don't judge black folks who don't fight, but to me, I would have never felt as a complete black belt without fighting of it. And I'm not judging. I, everyone's different. Myself. To me, that's part of the journey. Like, I want to see if this works against me at the best of the world, right? And I, you know, for whatever the case, in my career, like, I, I did that. Like, I fought some really good guys, and I, I tested myself in all fields. So I wanted to get the whole experience into this, and I feel that I did that. Um, but, like, jiu-jitsu's gone in a completely different direction. And I'm not going to be one of those guys that's old school. Oh, this wouldn't work in the streets. Or Billy Mbolo wouldn't work. And I'm like, true, Billy Mbolo wouldn't work in the streets. But Paulo Miao would still whoop butt of 99.9% of the world population out there. With Billy Mbolo, they would die. You know, and that's just a fact. Like, you put Paulo Miao to fight anyone. And they like, 99.9% of the world population would choke that and suck his butt. So jujitsu as is, even if it's not MMA or self-defense oriented, it still works. Even if they pull guard or something sweet. So, um, I don't judge the new generation for moving away from the roots of the goods in terms of martial art, right? The art of fighting. Uh, I just don't, I don't want that for myself. I, I want a style that's going to work when I need it. And, um, I always kept that in mind when I trained. I wanted something that was going to work everywhere, not something that was only going to work in the youth. So, Robert, uh, sorry, uh, we were going to, uh, Kyle, I cut uh, two clips of Philippe Andrew, but let's, let's skip the first one. The first one I was going to show is not as important as the second one, just because we're low on time. The first one was him hitting an ankle lock, which I love Philippe Andrew's ankle locks. It's just ridiculous. Probably the best in the game. But 
this second one, you were you were there for this. We'll play this clip, let you talk about it, and then you can talk about Felipe's future. This is uh, probably the biggest win of his career, is, uh, the triangle on, on Keenan in the Euros Open class. So you actually had to uh, step away from the commentary booth for this match. Is that correct, Robert? You were there. Yeah, I had to apologize. I feel bad. It's like, man, but this is the final of <laughs> you. You take the mic for me, you know. And um, like, Felipe lost to Dario in his weight class. I think it was the final. The final. I think it was the final. And uh, and you know, we, we didn't underestimate Dario, but just like one of those things, like Dario and Felipe are very similar. They're fast finishers. They're just like score for finish, and you blink and they call, right? Both of them. And, uh, but like Felipe was really down after that fight, so like I had to cheer him up. And I, I, I don't, I think I've helped Felipe a lot, but I can't take credit for him. Like, I was giving Kavaka because Kavaka's the one that's been taking care of his whole life, you know. And I called Kavaka, and I'm like, I gotta cheer this kid up. What do I do? <laughs> so Kavaka was giving me the on the phone on how to cheer him up for the final with Keenan, you know, because he was feeling really down. And I think it helped. I think Kavaka spoke to him too, and I used some Kavaka's tactics to get back in the, you know, and back in the mood of winning. And, uh, you know, I, I could feel his energy getting better, you know, because you can feel the energy of Felipe. You know, he, he's very obvious about it. Like, he doesn't hide his, his body language. is very, very obvious. And you can see him getting better at, as, as he went, right? And um, as, as, as time went by. So when he walked in with Keenan, like, I could just see it. Like, you can see how excited he is. And you can just read his body language. Like, oh, that going to work. Like, I, at that point, I can tell because he's the kind of guy that if his head's in the right place, like he's like a little robot, man. Just like win. Like you, it's like playing video games. Man, you press A and he jumps. You know, like it's it's easy to coach him because he, you know, it's he uh, um, he listens. And if his mind is in the right place, I, I, you know, he's ranked number one in the world now. But like he's without a doubt top three, like uh, overall, like, even regardless of you know what you think of the rankings. Um, but it's he's a very unique individual in the sense where he's very very athletic. He doesn't really know how. Uh, how, how much potential he still has given his age. You know, that triangle he hit on, he was about to hit it. I used to brag about no one putting me in the triangle. I hadn't been triangling in like over 10 years. Like, oh, no one can put me in a triangle. I have this one thing I do, no one can put me in a triangle. But you can't stop for me because triangle is too fast. Man. Like, you, you can't. And I, you know, I have to bite my tongue when I train. I just try not to get triangle for the rod or foot rod, you know. Um, but, yeah, he's just uh, he's just deadly with those two. And I, and I don't mind saying this because you can prepare for it all you want. You're not going to be ready. It's very unusual. You don't you don't see it coming. Did you guys see yourself winning by triangle in this match? Did you think the open guard was going to be the way to victory, or did you just let him play out as he was? Um, you know, we. I mean, who wants to be in Keenan's guard? You know, like no one. Like, what are you going to do there? Like, he's going to like wrap you up in like thirty different ways. You don't even know what's going on. Like, how do you prepare for that? So we wanted to be on bottom. We had a game plan if we were on top. Like we had a plan for that. But, you know, obviously we preferred any, anyone should go to the team if to be on bottom, I, I would imagine. Unless you can anticipate it and get really close really fast, which is not easy to do because you're aware of it. But if I were to fight Keenan on top, I'll just try to immediately pull my way into the photo fly and half guard without giving you grips. Um, but on bottom, I think I thought that Felipe had a good chance of, uh, you know, getting into a single X or a 50-50 or like the triangle. So that was the game plan going in. And uh, I thought Keenan was doing a really good Like Keenan didn't make any mistakes in the sense where his position was flawless for Felipe's game. It's just that it's hard to describe to people how good Felipe's triangle is and how like no matter how much you prepare for it, you can't prepare for it. 
How fast is uh, Felipe's triangle? Because Keenan, that's that's the thing he told me right after this match. He's like, man, I knew he had a good triangle. I didn't know it was that fast, though. That's the thing. Like, you're, you think you're positioned and you're safe and you're not. That's like your position somewhere. You know when people describe when they fought, uh, uh, I think I spoke to like some of the guys that fought Lofton at the uh, ADCC. It's like, man, what happened to heel hook? I thought it was out. I thought it was safe. And then he just like suck him back in and heel hook him, right? And that's kind of like what Bruce Felipe is. Like, you go, you're in his guard and you're thinking, I'm 100% safe. There's no way caught in trouble. It's, it, it's the same. Everyone knows it, but he just has this pop and surprise element to it. Like, he's a lot more powerful and faster than you would think. And he, people underestimate that. I think that's like, you think you're safe in the way. What about that footlock of Felipe? What does that footlock feel like? Because he's got a brutal footlock, it looks like, from when I see it in competition. Uh, yeah, same thing, man. Same thing. Like, you don't you blink and he catches you. Um, like, I used to, the first few times I trained with him, I tried to defend him. Like, I got to get out. I don't want to tap, you know? Like, and then I'm like, now I'm just like, okay, okay. You know, like before he even goes there, like, because he, he's, he's got an acceleration from 0 to 100 that he's, he's, he doesn't have a mean bone in his body. Like, he's the nicest, sweetest kid in the world. You can possibly get mad at him. He's such a nice guy. But, like, he, you know, when he he's training, like, he's very, very powerful. He accelerates very fast. And when he goes for something, it's almost like it's scary. You have to preemptively tap. Like, that's the thing. If you try to tap after you're caught, it's too late. Yeah, you, you know, because uh, that's, a, that's a submission that, for whatever reason, people don't people don't respect that straight ankle lock. So, you know, when somebody at the black belt level is regularly tapping people with it, it's a really vicious one. And you, you can't, like, and, and you're like, oh, I'm just going to hide my feet. Like, in a fight, you can say that all you want. You're going to, it's, it's like, it's like being an MMA fight and going, oh, I'm not, you can't, you know, you're not, I'm not going to get jabbed. I'm not going to get hit in the face. Like, what do you mean? You're going to get hit. You know, you're going to get exposed. So, you know, defending is very difficult because he has elevated the game at that particular uh, fight, you know, the footlock fight, like, so high that most people don't even know what to do until it's way too late. So you can kind of prepare for it, but I, I'm telling you, like I know he's going to go for a full lot, and I can't stop it. So I, I, I can't see anyone who doesn't train with him stopping it. Yeah, Felipe is absolutely one of the most exciting uh, characters today on the Black Belt scene. I think it's about that time, though, for us to, to run that question for Craig Jones. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, let's do it. So here we had Craig Jones on yesterday, if you want to play that thing. Uh... So that leads us up to uh, our qu- we need to get a question from you for our guest tomorrow, who is Robert Drysdale. Oh, a good question for Robert Drysdale. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. I did train with Robert Drysdale back in the day. Actually, I used to pop in to Vegas and train with him. Hey, what, what, did you ever get to go right. around with him? How's that? Was this like your purple belt tour uh, actually, days? Actually, never. I never trained with him personally. Actually. I'm trying to think of a good question, a, a question that might trigger him or something. <laughs> who, who is the greatest American ADCC champion in history? There you have it. Who is the greatest American ADCC champion? By the way, I used to remember, Craig has been my gym many times. I don't think we actually ever have trained. What I remember is a very talented purple belt. And coming in, in and out, he had this other kid who was always with him. I can't remember, Lachlan, I think was his name, not Lachlan, that was different Lachlan. Yeah, there's another one. Uh, yeah, they used to pop in the gym all the time, good people. And uh, best American ACC champion of all time. I, I don't say Gordon Ryan, I can't think of anything else. I, I, I mean, yeah, it has to be Gordon, without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, who are the options? It's Gordon, JT, you, Marker. 
Dean Lister. That's true. Dean Lister. There's actually he's, there's a few a, know, absolute champs from from America. More than I would have thought. He's a Dean. Like man, he's one of my favorite people in the world. Man. He's such a he's a really fun guy to be with. If you haven't hung out with them, definitely. If you have the opportunity, hang out with Dean one day. Um, <laughs> him too, man. Like he, he's a big guy. He's like you know he's not particularly like a finisher, you know. But I'm gonna go by technique. I'm gonna be make that criteria, which is always unfair with older generations because younger younger generations are always standing on the shoulders of giants, right? They see further. It has to be Gordon, but I think that like I like you know you got to put Dean and JT up there too, like a very close second, one or the other. Even though like I think JT, JT's been impressive too. Like it's a fun guy to watch. It's up there, JT, Dean, and Gordon. Those three. It's hard to say, man. All right, so uh, to follow that up. We got to get a question from you for Walid Ismail. Uh, Valij, Valij. <laughs> um, okay, Valij. What does the BJJ community have to do for you and Hendel Grainsty to get along, be friends again? Is there a chance that you guys can be friends again? Or if you guys ever work? We're going to have to move some worlds, I think, to get that one done. Hilarious question. Or, 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 <laughs> Friends, let's okay. Let's just see the fight happen because I want to see the fight happen. Hilarious question. You're you're a guy who loves BJ history. Talk a little bit about Waleed. Everybody loves Waleed. What what was Waleed like back in the day? Oh man, he. I remember like you know I had like I mentioned the Hoist Gracie like image in my head. like that was like first like jujitsu. What is this? You know, I think Waleed would have been the second person right after because Waleed was the guy that incorporated what we called in Brazil at the time the pit boy. I don't I think the term that have been used here in the US, but Pit Boy was like a pit bull, you know, like a tough guy, you know. And I, that was one of the reasons why I was attracted to jujitsu. Like I'm not proud of admitting this, but like when you're sixteen years old, being the baddest guy in the room is important, you know? And like I wanted to be that guy. And Valigi incorporated that guy. He was a guy, like he would be on TV all the time and he had all the sponsors on his V and he talked the talk and he was such a, a, a charismatic, like he gets a guy, he's like a lot smaller in person when I finally met him. Man, I imagine him being huge, you know. But he had that, that he played the tough guy character really well. He could have been a pro wrestling kind of guy. And then when he beat Hoist, I'm like, oh man, this guy's phenomenal. This guy just tapped Hoist crazy, right? So I think that he, uh, uh, he, he represented like a, a big aspect of BJJ and its marketability in Brazil and in the U.S. to some extent, but like that was a huge sales pitch for jiu-jitsu was the fact that these guys were supposed to be like bad. They were supposed to be phenomenal. They were supposed to be best fighters in the world, and Valigi spoke like that. He, he's, he's a bit like Connor. Like, he had like this confidence about him that just got people attracted to him. You know, he just wanted to watch him fight, even though like I wouldn't rank him the top guys from Carlson Grayson back days. I don't think anyone would, but – he was the guy who was on the press all the time. He just, you know, he knew how to get his name out there really well. And a guy like him was important for the growth of jiu-jitsu in Brazil at that time, I believe so. Man, I'm excited for that one. I, uh, my instructor, actually, Carlson Gracie Jr., him and, him and Waleed got their black belts the same day. So I've heard a, a million funny Waleed stories in my life, and I'm looking forward to this interview. Uh <laughs> Robert, I think we got a few minutes left. If you want to give uh, a message to the fans out there, to the viewers, you know, uh, a little parting uh, message to everybody. Um, if you're ever in Vegas, um, come visit. You know, I, I my 
been in Vegas for, for 12 years now. I have like what I call an open door policy. People are welcome to, to come train. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just like, you know, people visiting always, always try to treat them as well as possible. Make them feel at home. You know, I always consider BJJ to be one big family. It's one of my favorite things about the sport that can go to any country in the world, any gym in the world. And, um, People welcome me like as if I were one of their own. All right, so I, I really enjoy that about sport. I do ask people to support the documentary. Like we should be out this summer. Um, you know, I'm not doing this. I'm not making anything from this. If I do the math, I'm like thousands of dollars, like because of my time that I put into this, in the whole just like getting involved in this production. But like I want to do. I think it's important that we understand our history, right? So I ask people to support um, any way they can, and uh, you know that's it. That's uh, yeah. If I ever, if you ever you come to Vegas, come come visit me. And uh, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, I am sure I'll see you guys again at some point. Absolutely, Robert. Thanks again for the time. Hey, where can fans find uh, places to support the film? What's the website called? Where can, where can we get involved? Uh, what uh, closeguardthemovie.com. We also have an Instagram and Facebook page, which we're updating people on what's going on. Uh, at closeguardthemovie. At closeguardthemovie. That's our that's our Instagram. And then people get a little idea of what we're doing. And uh, we're going to have some, a lot of updates soon because we're getting close. We have some like like trailers that we're working on so people can get a better idea of what the story is about. And that's taking a lot of our time now. But I think that the end result will be something that we be very proud of. And hopefully the BJJ community can really you know enjoy and appreciate all right, so we got uh, a really good schedule coming up. Like we said, we got Waleed tomorrow. Tomorrow night on Gordon's show and the King Ryan show, we have Mario Lopez uh, <laughs> from Saved by the Bell fame is 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 going to be the act, uh, guest. I'm excited about that. Friday on this show, we have uh, Rafael Lovato Jr. Monday, we have Tanquinho. Tuesday, Leo Vieira. Wednesday is a big one. Marcelo uh, Garcia and Eddie Bravo together calling in. Thursday, Hinato Canuto. So, yeah, we got a big next week. Thank you so much for calling in, Robert. And, uh, yeah, everybody take it easy. All right. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Ciao. Ciao. See you guys next time. Take care.